Right now I'm with Jamie Miller. Um, he is a biomimicry consultant in Guelph with a PhD in environmental engineering. Um, Jamie, could you talk more about yourself and what biomimicry is? Sure. Um, I'll start with biomimicry because uh, it tells a little bit about myself. But biomimicry by definition is innovation that's inspired by nature. It's a term that was coined in 1997 by a woman named Janine Benyus. Um, who is actually the woman who trained me and taught me about biomimicry at a deeper level. Um, but fundamentally, it's about recognizing that nature does design really well. It's been doing it for billions of years. And to me, it's that lens that you look to the world. And when you look through a biomimetic lens, you can see these forms and processes in nature and learn to adapt them, or sorry, abstract them and apply them to our own design or our own challenges. Uh, that's what biomimicry is. And a little bit about me is that um, I fell in love with this concept in uh, my undergrad at Queen's University where I took a, an elective called Math and Poetry um, and it was an hour and a half of math and an hour and a half of poetry and in the math section we um, explored what's called the Fibonacci sequence which is a sequence of numbers that um, when played around with and kind of explored deeper creates this thing called the golden ratio or the golden mean. Um, or the Fibonacci spiral. And in the class, we um, unpacked this sequence and saw that this spiral is ubiquitous in nature. So it's the same spiral that you see in the packaging of sunflower seeds or in a pine cone. Um, even your skin pores follow the Fibonacci spiral. The, the entire galaxy and how we're exploding from the Big Bang is following a Fibonacci spiral. So it's really everywhere. It's this model of... Uh, how nature seems to behave or the patterns that you can see uh, frequently in nature and for whatever reason that set me off on this this journey that I've been on for over 15 years of just absolutely obsessed with finding design secrets from the natural world um, and that's really what's defined my whole career since 2004 when I learned about this this idea um, but yeah I come from a small town uh, my dad's a farmer my mom came from uh, like North Toronto uh, we lived near the farm. Somehow my dad convinced her to live out there. And uh, I've always been obsessed with nature and always been uh, canoeing and camping in the backcountry. Um, and that upbringing, along with this like really intense desire to learn more about nature, kind of has fueled my whole career and my passion. And um, I say to people, I only did grad work uh, because there's nowhere else that was doing biomimicry. I never intended to do graduate work. I never saw myself, even as a university, I didn't see myself as a university student, um, but I'm glad I did. And I did a PhD just because uh, I wanted to learn more about biomimicry. Uh, and that's the only reason. Um, that's amazing. And so then after that, I, I started my consulting company, just continuing with that trend. Wow, okay, that's <laughs> great. Um, so you were immersed in nature as a young child. Yeah. And from that, uh, you grew, and I guess that passion from, you know, your nature-filled background, you wanted to understand it more. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so, considering your passion and expertise with biomimicry and nature, how has that affected your um, design philosophy, or because I think you're also an engineer, right. your engineering philosophy, yeah. that's a thing. Yeah. Um, how has that affected and grown your thoughts about design? Yeah, it's, I'd say it's fundamentally transformed them. 
um, that was what was interesting with the Fibonacci spiral is that I was there at Queen's learning about how to engineer the environment. We learned how to use math to manipulate our spaces and to manipulate nature. And the whole time I thought there had to be a different way of doing this. I always felt uncomfortable. And so when I learned that nature uses math as well to describe, or we could use math to describe the patterns in nature, or that nature uses math, you can see it kind of chicken or egg there. But um, once I realized that, uh, I, I realized I was opening up a book to a whole new world of design secrets. And ever since then, I often look, well, everything I do, I look to nature for design advice. And um, like I said, it's a perspective. So all I see is how nature does it better. And all I'm trying to do is to abstract those better ideas into a built environment. And that gap between nature and, and us um, seems really wide, even though we are natural species, we come from nature. But in terms of how we do things, it's very different. And I'm so intrigued by that difference, what that gap is. So um, yeah, it's fundamentally, fundamentally transformed my whole perspective. And, and now I see everything through a biomimetic lens. And I see it being applied to everything. And I, and I mean that almost literally. Like I think everything we do in terms of how we build communities, how we build economies, how we build political systems, all of that can be informed by biomimicry. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so you said um, that nature kind of gives off a lot of design secrets, which yeah. sounds really intriguing. Yeah. I want to get more into that. Yeah. Um, and that nature gives a lot of design advice and how nature always does it better. Um, can you give some specific examples? Sure. Um, one of my favorites is spider silk. Um, spider silk is has a strength to weight ratio greater than anything we've ever made as human beings. Um, so we think we build strong, robust materials like steel or concrete um, or even carbon fiber. But spider silk, um, they say if you scaled it up, it would stop a 747 jet midair. That's how strong it is. And yet it's so light. But the genius of spider silk is that it's made at body temperature and body pressure with a subset of the periodic table of elements. So nature is pretty much carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and hydrogen. And that makes it very easily broken down into mm-hmm. its you know, basic parts, and that means it can be reused. So spiders can make this incredible material in its body, at body temperature, body pressure, where we use a lot of pressure and a lot of temperature to build things. Um, it's fully recyclable, so a spider will actually eat its own silk, and it's made only with the energy of the sun. So. Um, that example just shows you that we design materials with an abundance of energy. We'd use a lot of energy and a lot of different elements and nature can do it um, more effectively and with better kind of basic principles. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> is there a reason why, um, actually, is there, do you see examples of uh, this type of nature inspired design in Toronto? Um, good question. I don't, nothing comes to mind specifically. Um, and I'll kind of explain what's going through my head because biomimicry, you can break it down into three different parts. You can emulate forms in nature, you can emulate processes, and you can emulate systems. So in my head, I'm just thinking like, are there any form-based models in Toronto that emulate nature. Um, 
there's one company called Whale Power, which was based out of Toronto, and they copied the humpback whale fins, and I talk about this a lot in my videos and whatnot, but humpback whales have bumps on the front edge of the fin. Mm -hmm. They're called tubercles, and they seem counterintuitive because they're on the front edge of the fin, but um, they applied that technology to a wind turbine blade, and the wind turbine blade was 20% more efficient than a traditional blade. So that's an example in Toronto uh, of form-based biomimicry, copying the forms and recognizing that nature's forms can produce more efficient designs. Um, I can't think of any, like I'm trying to think of architecturally and I can't think of anything right now, um, but then you can look at like process-based and there's an example, there's a company I'm working with right now called Annex Market um, and what they're trying to do is decentralize grocery stores. And so nature is very decentralized. Um, that's one of the, the basic principles of, of nature, and that's what makes it redundant. And so this company is um, decentralizing grocery stores and essentially bringing the mail, like the milkman back or the milk person back. That's what they, their slogan is, because they deliver high quality foods that are produced potentially locally um, and they're delivered to your door. Um, and so that distribution like nodal network is more biomimetic than if you have a centralized system. Um, one like cool kind of way of thinking about nature is um, and that distributed models um, this idea of mycelium which is like the underground mm -hmm. fungal network we talk a lot about mycelium okay. in this space <laughs> yeah I mean mycelium is amazing because we're just starting to uncover it as a species we're starting to recognize how really important it is into forest ecosystems um, a lot of research out of UBC that's kind of shown us the brilliance of mycelium but in it, it talks about the interconnectedness of trees, and trees will actually distribute resources to other trees in a decentralized, nodal kind of way. Um, and that's what makes it so resilient. And I remember Janine Benyus telling me once, um, there's one study that she found that they introduced a pest at one end of a, of a forest, and the forest was like a kilometer by a kilometer. And they said within three to five days, the other end of the forest had already started to make antibodies or some sort of like reactive materials or forms to that pest being introduced. And that was because the, the mycelium was com like helping communicate to all the trees that there's been some sort of perturbation or some sort of like infestation coming. So start to make, ad ad like adapt some strategies to resist that. Um, and so that's kind of like what I see this annex market being is this like decentralized nodal kind of way of doing things and creating more um, niche communities so that you're closer to your community. You know where your food's coming from, um, but also, you, yeah, you have this tighter connection with your community. Um, in that sense, like biomimicry can get a bit abstract and you can see it's not as easily translated as a humpback whale fin inspired turbine blade. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's quite easy to see that. Um, and that's actually what makes biomimicry a bit difficult for people to understand is that, um, cause once, I don't know, once I started looking through this lens, I see everything through biomimetic and it can be more abstract and more real tangible and practical. Um, but it all relates to the same thing. I'm using nature to inform whether it's a good idea or not. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> okay. Um, and so on that note, actually, um, because it is a little bit abstract and a little bit hard to grasp mm -hmm. at times, um, what is something that biomimicry can teach us that you think young designers should know? 
I think the biggest thing is um, just recognizing that there might be a different way of doing things. Um, that's all biomimicry really is. It's, it's just recognizing that we, what we do may not be sustainable. And there's a whole textbook of ideas that have been evolving for billions of years. And so through that evolution, you know, there's some good strategies. Um, I'll, I'll give you a practical example of sure. uh, how I apply biomimicry. So I'm working with B plus H architects and we're designing a home in India. And part of my process was to find out what the problems were, like what were the design problems? Because um, when I was teaching at OCAD, one of the things I, talk, I really focus my students on is not jumping to the solution set. Um, because if you jump too quickly, you're probably going to pull from old philosophies or old ideas that might not be appropriate. So instead, we needed to stay in really ident identifying and defining the problem. Um, and in this case, one of the problems was heating or cooling in India. They wanted to figure out how we can cool the building more efficiently um, with the high temperatures and the massive monsoons, like this very uh, dynamic weather. Um, so I literally went to nature and I was like I asked okay how does nature cool in this context I used local organisms local solutions and one of the cool ones that I found was elephant skin um, and elephants cool themselves everyone kind of knows by their ears are big fans but what's not super well known is that their skin is deep has deep cracks and these deep cracks hold moisture in so that when you roll in the mud and when they like get you know blow themselves with water um, they can walk through the desert or the hot sun and those cracks don't dry out really quickly because they're kind of shaded, they're protected. And because of that, it allows the elephant to cool over longer periods of time. The evaporative transfer, like the evaporative cooling lasts longer. So I used that idea to design a wall that copied that mechanism. Um, and so it was just a, a rock wall kind of feature that when connected to the rain harvesting system, it trickles water in and it'll actually passively cool the building over longer periods of time. Um, so that's just a, a practical example of how designers could apply biomimicry. It's just literally looking to nature uh, for design ad advice and, and finding it in different ways. Wow, that's actually amazing. I would have never thought that elephant, like I, I just, this whole time I was like, why are elephant skin, like why is it so, dry <laughs> yeah yeah totally <laughs> dry looking but it's totally the opposite which is really cool um okay and i know that there are a lot of wicked problems in the world yeah um tons what are some wicked problems that uh do you think that biomimicry can address i mean the one that i'm most focused on is climate change yeah. That seems to be the most Huge. wicked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so one that I think everyone should be focused on and that we're starting to a little become a little bit more aware of. Um, and how I'm going about uh, doing that is you, I'm using biomimicry more as a tool in that sense. Because from my research, what I recognize is that the one of the best contributions to uh, mitigating climate change is to create more natural spaces. Um, so mm -hmm. in my research, I realized humans have been building ourselves out of nature for a long time. Um, the majority of our populations are now in urban centers. And in urban centers, we don't have natural spaces. And I wouldn't even call parks natural spaces. I, f I feel like they're quite engineered and manicured. But 
um, yeah, without natural spaces, nature can't dissipate weather. It can't dissipate the sun's energy. And without that, you, we get these like dynamic climate events. Um, so my whole goal is to bring nature back into the city, bring harmony back into the city, because we spend a lot of energy resisting nature. Um, I said this in my, in my TED talk as well, that um, we know we spend a lot of energy resisting nature because if we left the city right now, nature would take over. Um, there's like a natural gradient and we really try hard to keep that gradient strong and we're building it um, uh, We're building a stronger gradient by resisting nature as much as we as we do so Yeah, my mission is like let's harmonize. Let's bring nature back into the cities Let's create more natural spaces and I use biomimicry as a tool in that uh, I want people to see that being close to nature and being immersed in nature is actually um has way more benefits than drawbacks. So we, you know, people don't like camping because there's mosquitoes and uncertainty and nature's kind of got this scary vibe to it, but um, it has so much to offer, not only in terms of um, like the lumber and the resources that we extract from it, but the information, like biomimicry is teaching us that nature's doing design way better than us. So let's keep it around so that we can study it. And then from that, hopefully we can create more natural environments that help mitigate climate change. Mm -hmm. um, because once you start to dig down, uh, yeah, ecological degradation is one of the, like a major contributor to climate change, um, or at least it could be a major buffer to climate change because nature's really good at um, equalizing its environment and kind of dissipating gradients. So that's kind of my philosophy behind that. Okay. Um, so when you say natural spaces, is it possible to build a city while at the same time building natural spaces? I think so. Yeah, I think it's just going to be a shift in our paradigm. Like, um, w the way that we engineer seems to be that we like things to stay the same. Like, this room is not moving. It's not doing anything. Mm -hmm. um, it's trying to resist environmental pressures. Like, our walls on the outside of the building are trying to resist the cold, resist the heat, resist the wind. Um, and it takes a lot of energy to resist things. Nature's a bit different because if you think of your skin as a wall, your skin is breathing, it's shedding, it's expanding and sweating, it's very dynamic, and yet it's a wall between two environments. So what I mean by changing our paradigm is, yeah, we can bring nature in and build a city, but I think our walls are gonna have to behave more like skin. Um, or our transportation systems are gonna have to work more like ants or, or mold. Um, it's gotta be much more dynamic and fluid in that it's, using information from the environment and making quick changes immediately instead of trying to resist that information. Um, so yeah, that's where I think the cities of the future are going to more dynamic, more natural, but also, yeah, it's going to be not resisting putting trees on your building or uh, having moss grow up the side of the wall or whatever nature wants to do. Um, it's going to be a combination of both. So I think biomimicry will inform the built part, um, but it also I think it will push to you know, harmonizing natural and built as well. So bringing nature back in. Mm -hmm. Wow, that, I think that's like a beautiful dynamic that we have to, um, as people, kind of have to work towards. Yeah, Yeah. agreed. Um, so, in your TED talk, you mentioned something about being like weeds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> could you elaborate on this and how it can help um, young designers work better together? Yeah, sure. What I mean by being like weeds is whenever an ecosystem shifts, 
the first species that come up are weeds. And weeds is a human term, like it's just things that we don't like. But the technical term is our species and our species are pioneers, they're entrepreneurs. Um, and at our, in our classes at OCAD, we used to talk about this being a new volcanic island and being the our species of this island, how do we exploit resources to create a new ecosystem? So if you have a volcano take over a landscape, moss will start to form or algae or lichen um, and that lichen will create new foundations for trees and ecosystems to emerge so it's like how could we use that metaphor to take what we have this built environment and evolve it to a new a new ecosystem um, so when i say act like weeds it's have that entrepreneurial spirit and look for wasted opportunities we talked a lot about that um, in our class and, and actually in the project we're working at in Guelph, the circular economy is nature's really good at harnessing, harnessing resources. So if there's like a, a lot of sunlight over here, a plant that loves sun is going to find a way to exploit that big broad leaves or rapid growth. Um, so I challenge students and individuals to think like a weed, like where are their wasted opportunities? And one of my students I loved um, looked at the side of the wall, like the side of buildings. And he thought, well, that's a huge wasted opportunity. Like, what if we could collect some of the rainwater on those buildings, on those walls and slow rain down? And so he made a modular kind of leaf rain harvesting system. And you could put it in places where the rain was more uh, likely to hit. Um, and you could slow rain down, you could collect it. And I just love that idea as he's looking at a building wall and he's like, wow, there's nothing happening there. Why don't we do something? Like nature, like moss or ivy would climb that and start to exploit the sunlight or, or the water. Um, mm -hmm. And even there's a technology, um, uh, a biomimetic technology where they have made, it's called solar ivy. And it's solar panels that are shaped like leaves. And they can fit on any form, so not just like rectangular buildings. But while they're collecting the energy from the sun, they're also collecting the energy from the wind because they're inspired by the way ivy would rustle when the wind blows by it. Um, and buildings have huge wind loads running up them. Mm -hmm. um, you can sometimes feel it in the city, like huge wind tunnels coming down major streets. And like so, Chicago? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so this company was like, well, let's exploit the sun, but also let's exploit that wind. So they have these piezometric meters in the leaf that collect the kinetic energy from the wind. Um, so that's an example of thinking like a weed. It's look at those, those resources that are not being used and exploit them with some sort of product or idea. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. Um, so you, just like maybe like a off question. Yeah. Um, when is a dandy dandelions are weeds. Yeah. So when you get like a dandelion on your front yard, yeah. do you do you chew it away or do you let <laughs> it exploit the <laughs> the resources? Yeah, good question. I usually just let it go. Um, because I mean what that dandelion is telling you is that what you're doing is not supernatural. And if you let it just go, if you let it be more natural, um, it would it would eventually the dandelions would be snuffed out by bigger trees. You don't see dandelions in the heart of a forest unless mm -hmm. there's kind of a, you know, a break in the forest. Um, so the dandelion's just telling you, uh, like, I'm going to stick around as long as there's this, like, platter of lovely sun and no competition. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you let it go. Now, the cool thing is, is 
you can there's design philosophies like permaculture where you can actually work with that and make something that works for both you and the ecosystem uh, and that's what I'm really interested in as well is how do we build these harmonizing designs because people don't just want you know tall grasses in their backyard they may want something more beautiful more um, mm -hmm. uh, more practical and so it's about planting strategies so you can plant these weedy species that support the growth of other species or or whatever you want okay yeah cool um, I would have never thought about it that way <laughs> <laughs> um, what is the most surprising thing you learned about biomimicry or the industry that you work in thus far the most surprising thing about biomimicry is that people don't not everyone knows about it I find that fascinating um, because to me it's such a logical idea and it makes so much sense that we just look to nature for design advice like Leonardo da Vinci was a huge biomimetic or Antonio Gatti in Spain and Barcelona his church is based on biomimicry and like even indigenous people copied Arctic hair feet to make snowshoes. Like we've been doing biomimicry, quote unquote, for a long time. And I'm, so, I'm shocked that not everyone does it or not everyone knows about it. Um, that's the biggest shock about the industry for me. But I've been working with like um, Janine and, and Dana Bomeister, who's a co-founder of Biomimicry 3.8. And I've partnered with Jay Harmon from Pack Scientific, who I think is one of the best at applying biomimicry. He's made the Lily Impeller or the Pax fan. And the fan is just based on the Fibonacci spiral. Um, or his impeller is just based on if you break open a seashell, you get this really beautiful spiraling um, form. Mm -hmm. And he copied that form to make an impeller that can mix water or move fluids at way greater efficiency than a traditional propeller. Um, so I talked to those people about how and why biomimicry isn't everywhere. Um, and I get, you know, different answers. Um, but fundamentally, I think it's a lack of education and it's a lack of application. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah, we don't really, growing up, I never really heard the term. Yeah, me and neither. And it was only until post-secondary where um, I saw your course and I was like, biomimicry, what is that? Yeah. Yeah. But I definitely think, too, that it should be more widespread or, like, even taught in some shape or form, like, in elementary schools because I think it would be really fun for even children to learn about it. Yeah, yeah I've actually done workshops with even kindergartens um, mm -hmm. and I, I love working with them because they don't lack imagination like they don't yeah. have boundaries like we do um, and so the ideas that they come up with are like fantastic like they're they're out of this world um, and I love that kind of thinking I even apply it with some of my clients because uh, we call it design fiction I want you to come up with ideas that are you know might not be possible but that provoke a conversation of what could be or what should be possible. And kids are amazing at that. And um, once you're in that space, then you can look at the technologies around you and figure out how do you make that crazy idea real? So how do you make a wall that breathes like skin? Yeah, there's there's ideas and technologies out there that could actually make that happen. You just have to be creative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, as adults, it's like, it's way harder to think, quote unquote, outside the box. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're trapped in so many, like, this is a table, it has to be a table, it can't <laughs> right. be anything else. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, um, in my PhD, I, I looked a lot at the psychology of design. I was really interested why are humans so different from nature, and 
um, a big part of why we avoid but like these crazy ideas as we get older is that we just become more rooted in our paradigms mm-hmm. because those paradigms are really effective at keeping us safe. Like we're taught how to survive, like our parents teach us, our communities teach us, our cultures teach us how to survive. And so when we learn those basic traits or those basic ideas, we hold on to them pretty tightly because while well, we're trying to survive, um, the problem is, is if those ideas need to evolve. So it's very hard to let go of things that you rely on, especially your thinking. And that's a big part of what I do is I, I, I call one of the terms I use is we've got to think naturally before we build naturally. Um, and to think naturally, you may have to shake up some of your early assumptions for how the world works because they might not be necessarily correct. Um, I wouldn't say correct. There's no right and wrong. It's just whether it's uh, outdated or not. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess a big lesson from our conversation so far is really just there's no, like, we're, there's no really right way of doing things that we are doing things now um, and that we can look in different places, unexpected places such as nature to inform solutions for um, the future. Yeah. Yeah, a big thing I want to point out is that I don't think what we're doing is wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think there's like a really a right and wrong. Mm -hmm. It's, but I do think things need to evolve and your environment usually tells you when things need to evolve (laughs) like how the world is showing up is kind of a reflection for our thinking Um, like we live you know we see a lot of scarcity a lot of selfishness like a lot of people doing things that are uh, not coming from a place of community or abundance or interconnectedness Um, and that causes some problems like you know we see a lot of uh, environmental degradation or I, or people doing things from that space that aren't super helpful for the greater good. Um, so yeah, it's just maybe an evolution of our thinking. Give you an idea uh, of what I'm talking about is um, survival of the fittest was like the early paradigm of nature. That's what we thought nature to be. But with this new uncovering of mycelium networks and like how much nature works together, uh, we're starting to see it's not just survival of the fittest it's actually way more cooperation than we ever knew like um, there's things called mother trees in a forest Mm -hmm. and mother trees are the ones that seem to have gained the greatest success um, in terms of capturing resources and what they do is that they'll start to distribute a lot of their excess nutrients to other trees even even competing species they'll distribute it because there's an inherent knowledge I'll say quote-unquote knowledge in a forest that if everyone and the highest diversity is, is working well, that whole system's more resilient. So for, and as an example, you don't see one tree that's 600 feet above the rest of them. You don't see an Amazon-like tree out there, a company that dominates the market and has huge market share and market value. Um, it's much more equal. You have like an intact canopy in a forest and that intact canopy helps make it more resilient. Um, So you can see there's some social and political kind of philosophies you could draw from a a strong, resilient ecosystem or forest. And uh, I just like that idea that cooperation is much more um, prevalent in nature than what we think. And if you leave an ecosystem to its own devices, it will naturally go to highest diversity. That's what it wants. It wants the most diverse um, species. Um, But we just 
yeah, humans, we, our brain can't handle that much complexity and that much diversity, so we like to simplify things. Wow. Okay. So we have 10 minutes left. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to take this time to ask some more common questions that people have um, surrounding, um, you know, things like climate change and uh, sustainability in general. Mm-hmm. So the first one is, do you think that consumers have more power and impact to create change, or do corporations have more impact? I, I, yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. I think um, I'm going to cop out and say they both have <laughs> big impact. I think like we've tried the like the buy nothing days and. Um, you know, we have people showing how to, like, one of my employees lives uh, almost a waste-free lifestyle. I think she has, like, one small bag of garbage every, like, month. Um, people do it. It's just, like, people are also really inherently lazy. So, as a consumer, it's like, we love the good stuff. We Like, we have this social, like, we have a, it's ingrained in us to have, uh, like, a social, um, not competition, but we want to be liked by our peers, and that's just because we're social beings, and we need our community to help us sustain. So in that sense, it's like, yeah, we have a lot of power in terms of what we buy, but we're also lazy and we're materialistic. So corporations have a ton of influence as well, um, but they're just kind of feeding the market. Like the market, if it dictates it, they'll buy this is all to say, like, I think um, what I'm most excited about are companies who are creating products that are producing, like, sustainable results. So Interface Carpets is an example. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the carpets in this building. And their, old, their former CEO who passed away a few years ago, Ray Anderson, um, made it his mission to get to zero waste. And uh, he's, his company is almost there, which is amazing. That was 20 years ago he started. Um, and in his first year of, of declaring that they wanted to be zero waste, his profits increased by $20 million. So I want to find those companies and produce more of those companies that do good um, while also showing that you can make a lot of money. And I, at some point, yeah, you got to figure out where, where you know, it's truly sustainable because he's still making products um, and it's the same with Patagonia. Patagonia is on a mission to, well, I think their mission statement is to save our home planet. Yeah. That's it. And yet they're still making products that everyone buys and consumes and eventually throws away, even though they've tried to curb um, that linear waste cycle. Mm-hmm. They're doing, they're heading in the right direction. So long story short is like we both have power. Um, as a business owner, my goal is to make a business that's profitable and sustainable. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, as a consumer, I'm I'm very hyper aware of what I buy, and I always think of what's the external impacts of this. How much water does that take? And it's just a choice. It's a conscious choice because I think if I know that, I have a better understanding of how much damage I'm doing to this planet um, than if I'm ignorant to it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay. And the next one is um, with your experience in the industry so far Mm. how do you see the near future of sustainability and the state of the global environment from your perspective yeah the near future is i think it's amazing i'm so excited uh people are becoming much more bold um i think 
I work with a lot of successful business people who are jaded. And so we're starting to, I think, shift our mindset that money isn't the, the bringer of happiness. I see a lot of people nearing the end of their careers who have made lots of money wanting to do something good and wanting to donate a lot of their money. Um, I mean, they're in a position of power and privilege to do that, so it's like easy for them to do. Right. But I think we're seeing like a big shift, and I think it's going to be huge in terms of uh, what can be accomplished in the environment. At a global scale, it's like a little bit of mixed feelings because we have some countries like our own that are, I'd say, a bit backwards. Um, we have other countries like in Scandinavia or, or um, Amsterdam or uh, a lot of countries that are really pushing the, the envelope and I think uh, doing some pretty powerful things. So it'll be a balance. I think everything's a balance, but um, we're going to see more, I think, push from the environmental side. All right. Okay, and my last question for you before we wrap up is that climate change is, you know, becoming more and more <clears throat> of a hot topic um, in everyday conversation and in school and in work. What are some simple things people can do to help better the situation at hand? Um, <laughs> this might be a weird answer, but sure. one thing that I do... Um, is that uh, I'm very conscious of nature. And actually, like, I work with a lot of indigenous communities, and they very much have a biomimetic perspective. So that's I learn a lot from, from them, and I have an elder on my board specifically who teaches me a lot. And the one thing that we discuss a lot is gratitude. Um, uh, like, when was the last time we actually stopped to think about what a tree is providing for us and given thanks? Uh, we call it uh, reciprocity. Like, when, it, it, like, the giving tree, that old, the children's book, uh, it reminds me of that. But the tree is giving us the oxygen we need. It's giving us the soil we, we need to produce food. Um, it's giving homes for more organisms. Um, and so the first thing that I do, and I would suggest other people do, is just have a little bit of gratitude and, and start to recognize, like, how much nature is doing for us. And specifically, how much nature is doing for us when it's in the ground and not pulled up and cut into lumber. Um, that's like the simplest thing. And I think once you start to look through a lens of reciprocity, you start to make decisions differently. At least for me, it has. So when I have a shower, I literally am giving thanks. It's like, this. I love hot showers. Don't get me wrong. That's my one of my uh, guilty pleasures. But um, I'm also super present to how grateful I am for you know, for that water. Um, and indigenous communities that I work with, they really, they bring that to a next level, which is really powerful. Okay, great. I love that answer. It's, um, I think I, I resonate with that as well. Like I do like to give thanks to like people that I know, um, people who have helped me, people who I've helped. Um, even the things like I've, I've heard from other podcasts and other teachers that like when was the last time you said thank you to your bed <laughs> yeah. and I was just like yeah <laughs> it's so good it yeah. is good it really changes your perspective for the yeah. day um, yeah and even something so simple just gives like a like a major shift in perspective and I think that that is basically a big thing about our conversation as well like shifting your perspective mm -hmm. um, things aren't always uh, as 
you know, solid and concrete um, as we think mm -hmm. and lots of opportunity for change. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, change is nature. It's very natural. Yeah. It's just ability. It's really our ability to handle change mm -hmm. is a big part of this. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Jamie. Yeah, thank you. Um, it was a great pleasure getting to talk to you and getting to know you. Um, if people want to reach out to you, where can they go? I mean, the first thing is to check out our website, www.biomimicryfrontiers.com. Um, starting January 2020, we will be launching an online education platform. So you can learn everything that I've learned. Cool. Um, uh, yeah, and even develop your own biomimicry product or solution. Um, and this isn't just for designers. This could be for anyone who's interested in, in changing their little system that they're a part of. Um, so we'll be launching that, uh, and you'll find that more... You'll find it more on our website, or you can follow us on Instagram at just Biomimicry Frontiers. Amazing. Okay. Cool. Thank you. Thank you very much.